Hello again, folks. Michael with the Reason RX podcast, Everything Education. Today, again, we are fortunate enough to have engineer Hannes Hacker back to talk more about engineering. We've done some episodes with him already. You can listen to. He's talked about his background, what engineering is, some examples of good and bad engineering, the roots of engineering and science. So today, we're going to continue developing this topic. Um, We'll see what we have time for, what direction we may end up going in. But I want to try to see about talking about thinking skills involved in engineering, um, logic in engineering, how the education for engineers has pros and cons, what's good about it, what could be better. Maybe we'll talk, maybe today talk about what makes a good engineer. We'll see how we go, how much time we have. But, um, Hannes, could you say hi? Hello. So back again. So hope you're okay. doing well. All good with you? I am. Good, good, All good. All things considered. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, what are some thinking skills involved in engineering? What, and you got some examples of them? Um, General thinking I mean, skills and logic. Go ahead, sorry. I mean, aside from... The obvious things like logic, um, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, um, uh, basically inductive reasoning is, is when you have, when my personal experience, I have something strange that goes on with a satellite and it, it repeats itself, um, For example, you get errors, say, in a GPS receiver that 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 are not gonna they're not critical. They're not going to just, you know, cause you to lose the satellite, but they'll set off alarms and they happen repeatedly. And you start to try to find out what's going on, what, what what's happening, what's going on in common. Um, is this when we're passing out of the Earth's shadow, for example, uh, uh, into sunlight. Um, now, this is a different, I'm, I'm segueing to a different thing here. They, they, they noticed this on the Hubble t- Space Telescope. Hmm. In the minutes or so after going from, from the Earth's shadow to sunlight or the other way, they started noticing that the image quality was degraded. Huh. And they were able to trace this down. It always happened at sunrise and sunset, and they were able to trace this, and and they figured out that the cause was the fact that you had a thermal gradient that would appear on the the solar wings, and that would cause a vibration that would shake the telescope. Hmm. Wow. But it it, it took that process of saying, well, what's the one in the met? What's the one thing that is happening every time we're having this phenomenon? And they traced it to that. We have a weird one at work. We have these GPS errors I mentioned, and we found out that they happened a lot more often anyway. There seemed to be a Thursday afternoon at 5 o'clock mountain time. (laughs) 
you seem to get a lot of these. Well, the control center for the GPS constellation is in Colorado, which is on mountain time. And so we started to go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out, are they doing something to the GPS satellites, like on a weekly basis, that's causing these these errors? Um, that that was a candidate. I didn't work that particular one, um, but uh, that was that was one of the things we were looking at. Um, so, do you want me to get into also the importance of precise language? Yeah, we can do that. Can we like think about this induction a little bit? Um, then we can do whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Um, so, okay. Um, okay. Now, so what you're doing when you're doing induction, it sounds like some people think induction's just finding a pattern. Well, to do engineering oh. and what you did, it was more than just a pattern. It sounds like you're trying to find a cause, not just a pattern. Does a pattern really help? Isn't that just like the part pattern, of it or the beginning? The pattern's the beginning of it, right? Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope example I mentioned, it's, it's like, hey, we're having, what what's going on? Uh, at sunrise and sunset in particular because because it shouldn't matter as far as you know it doesn't what what was not part of the pattern was the the telescope itself could be pointed at any part of the sky at this time so it's mm -hmm. it's not like this you know you're not getting the sun causing the sun getting into the telescope or anything like that into the bore site but is it, it and that noticing that pattern is what got the engineers to say, well, what's going on? And, and that's, that's got them to the cause of this thermal gradient and this little snap in the wings. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, the, the pattern's the first step. Um, it's a mistake but, I uh, see a lot. A lot of geometry books, they've got a horrible, horrible, corrupt, wrong presentation of induction. It hurts my heart and hurts my mind. Um, needs to be fixed. You know, not like it's obvious. I sure the hell couldn't figure it out on my own. But having studied induction and studied science and the history of it, I've learned from other people what it is. But, um, yeah, just finding a pattern. So what? That's just finding a pattern. That's not necessarily induction, which is a different process. How would you um, describe or define induction? Oh, gosh. Do you want me to just yeah. go for it? Induction is the it's, isn't it the process of finding the one in the many that is that the pattern? Yeah, that could be concept then, formation too. Concept formation is very inductive. Induction forms a proposition, a general proposition. All planets orbit the sun in elliptical orbits with the sun at one focus. All humans are mortal. It's always an all S is P statement. All something has okay. a property, um, and right. Right, and, and 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 it is induction is the precursor to deduction, right? Yeah. Uh, there's the famous syllogism: "All men are mortal." Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Well, that's you know the the inductive part is where you where you know that all men are mortal. Mm -hmm. Am I right? Am I yeah. Wrong or? Yeah. That's what I'd say. It's very complicated. Um, actually, I teach some logic on outschool.com. 
And that's actually one example I like using how humans are mortal because it's so rich and involved. There's so much to it. So interesting biologically and cognitively. Um, but yeah, it's a, a thought, a proposition, a sentence about all things of a certain kind. That's our induction. Then yeah, um, good point about deduction, depending on induction. It's like parasitic. Deduction's impossible without prior inductions. Um, so some people, they get carried away in deduction. They use it. It's good. It's important. We need it. It helps. But if all people learn is deduction, then they're just caught up in thoughts, not connected directly to reality. It's a mistake. Caught up in like scholastic True. reasoning, like the um, scholastic um, Catholics, scholastic scholars in the Middle Ages, just arguing with themselves how many needles can dance on the head of a pin or something. Um, right. Not really a good engineering mindset, which involves deduction, but yeah, without that observation, concept formation, tie to reality, um, is not going to help. But, and yeah, the one in the many, that's an interesting idea, comes from ancient Greece. That's a idea they had, find the commonality or similarity in a bunch of things, concept to make a concept or a induction. Um, and that's still with us today. It's like, um, it's what Maxwell did, seeing electricity and magnetism are different aspects of the same thing. It's the one in the many. It's even though they seem like diverse phenomena, a magnet and lightning, what the hell do they have to do with each other? You're crazy. But Maxwell showed um, the one of the many different manifestations of the same fundamental thing. Um, great idea. I love I love that term. But then, yeah, that classic example of deduction. Nice. Um, yeah. And then... On that one, um, it's interesting, the one example you gave, the thermal gradient caused a vibration? Yes. Interesting. A very, 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 very slight vibration. But when you've got a telescope as accurate as the Hubble Space Telescope, that makes a difference. Is that something that they had experience with in the past or was that a novel phenomenon or what i think to them it was a novel phenomenon wow so it's like oh yeah another engineer, another engineering thing i just thought of when you mentioned that didn't think of it before but um one thing people had to learn was what was it the tacoma narrow narrows bridge in like 30s or 40s oh. you want to discuss that uh the tacoma that is a, a that is a classical example of a um, of a dynamic resonance, basically. Um, and what happened? Like, so if you get the disturb, it's funny. I was just watching a, a video here on uh, on YouTube as well. I can I can talk about that as well. Um, cool. So the best way I can explain it, if you get some kind of a vibration or some kind of a periodic force that happens at what's called a natural frequency of a structure. Each time 
it hits that structure, it will cause it to vibrate more and more and more. I use the example of if you have a child on a swing and you push the child forward at the right timing, right when they're on the bottom of the, of the swing, they're going to they're gonna swing higher and higher and higher now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's what happened, for example, when uh, when they designed this bridge, uh, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Tacoma, Washington. I've been there. I've actually been fishing under that bridge. Huh. Wow. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, bottom feeder, so cod, but hey, still <laughs> fish. But anyway, um, yeah. they're still edible. <laughs> what happened is, is they caught they caught a wind uh, at the time, and if you see the video of it, it's 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 just twisting. And the twisting is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And it was just the right frequency of wind to cause that, 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 that twisting that they didn't account for. And of course, the structural engineering uh, capabilities back in the 1940s, before there were even computers, I mean, was much more limited compared to what we can do now with, 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 with modern software. We very likely would have been able to predict that. Um, hmm. But it got bad enough, and then eventually the bridge collapsed. Hmm. And it, it, they rebuilt it. They redesigned it to take into account that, that, that resonant frequency. Um, and, uh, uh, um, you know, it's still standing today. Cool. But it, 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 it took that, you know, there's a lot of learning from mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. A similar example would be what's called i forget which one of the apollo missions it was it was six or seven it was one of the it was one of the apollo missions before they had manned missions so it might have been apollo five or six but they discovered what's called a pogo mode the engines as they're firing they're not completely smooth they they are kind of vibrating into the structure of the rocket well, it turns out that there was a natural frequency that it was hitting. And so the rocket was itself vibrating back and forth with the engines at the ever-increasing uh, amplitude. Hmm. Wow. And it, it almost fell apart Wow! on its way to it. And, and I, I don't remember if they, 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 what the implications would have been if there is a crew on board, that whether they would have had to, had to abort or not, because um, they're being just shaken to death. Quite possibly, hmm. literally. Hmm. So that that that's another that's another example of 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 um, of, of, of what's called a, a dynamic movements, a resonance. So, cool. um, and from what I've read, looking into the Tacoma Narrows Bridge thing, um, that was like some of the things you talked about. That was an example that let them know that that was something they had an issue they had to deal with. It had never happened before. No bridge had to have um, air currents or be treated like an airplane wing in designing it. Um, I think, I don't remember if they thought it wouldn't matter or it was just off their radar, but that... I think it was probably, it was probably off their radar because I remember one of the reasons, for example, that... Um, 
Octave Chanute, who was an early aviation pioneer, uh, got interested in aerodynamics is because he was actually a, a railroad uh, tycoon, basically. Uh, really, really interesting story. He showed up at a railroad, I forget which one, as a 15-year-old kid, and said, hey, uh, can, you, can you hire me? Can I have a job? And they hmm. said no. And he said, well, okay, uh, I'll just show up and just do whatever menial work you want me to do for you for free so that I can learn. And he eventually worked his way up to basically running that railroad. Hmm. And, and he was interested in trying to understand aerodynamics because as a railroad uh, tycoon, he, he had covered bridges all over the country. And he wanted to better understand how to do. Oh no! You still there? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, yeah. You got um, a call coming in or something? We got technical difficulties. I've got a call. No, no, I've got a call coming in and it's work. Um, you want to take it? I'll pause. Uh, okay, go ahead and pause. I'll, 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 yeah, that record. was. All right, we're back. All good. Call taken care of. So. Um, and what was the guy's name? The tycoon? Octave. Octave. O -C like the, the French name Octave. Chanute. C-H-A-N-U-T-E. And in fact, I believe there's C-H-A-N-U-T-E. Okay. And it's pronounced Chanute. I'll try to put a link and... in the show notes to that, as well as to some videos showing the Tacoma nearest bridge collapse. But um, Yeah, that should... So, but but he again was interested in understanding aerodynamics because he wanted to be able to better design covered bridges to not have their roofs blown off in in, in windstorms. Hmm. So it's not a completely new idea that a, that a bridge or even a building should should have be subjected to some kind of an aerodynamics uh, design analysis. Mm -hmm. I, I'm. I don't know how far back it goes, but I know when they design skyscrapers, for instance, when you get a really tall building in Chicago, you gotta you gotta take winds into account. Hmm. And I read somewhere that it's pretty routine for the top of the Sears Tower to move back and forth by a foot. Huh? Wow. Under. I remember that right? Just, do you remember the just wind? The wind. Like thirty mile an hour. Ten mile an hour. Or I, what? Yeah. I, I don't know what yeah. wind speed will, will do that, but it's, you know, the windy city. So <laughs> yeah. you're building the tallest building, what, what at the time is the tallest building in the world in a place called the windy city. You probably want to take aerodynamics into account when yeah. you're designing it. Truth. So. But so let me see. So on the Hubble, you say this would happen, if I remember right, only um, between dusk and dawn. Um when the sun's yeah, so, rising or falling, that's when you get this thermal variation causing well, vibrations. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me define my terms uh, because when we say sunrise and sunset in the context of the satellite, that is when it comes out of the Earth's shadow and into sunlight. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. it's not it's not like when you're on the ground and there's sunrises first thing in the morning and sunset in the evening. You'll have multiple sunrises and sunsets. Uh, hmm. Mm. Or a given satellite, given its altitude. Oh yeah, makes sense. Cool. So our, you know, so we we will refer to local sunrises or some local local, you know, sunset 
for our satellites, we have 14 of those a day. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm guilty. Bad, <laughs> bad use of language. Well, it's all right. Um, who'd have thought? But, okay, so when the Hubble would have one of its own sunrises or sunsets, this change would cause a thermal variation, which would set up a vibration, which would affect the image quality? Yes. Okay. Interesting. And they were able to engineer a solution for that so the image quality didn't suffer? Well... You know, I don't know if they, uh, that was one, that's a satellite that was capable of being repaired by the shuttle, the space shuttle. I don't know if that is one of the repairs that they made. Ah, yeah. Or they, or the simplest solution might have been, well, you've got certain satellite, you've got certain observations that the astronomers make that don't require as much resolution. And you just schedule those around those times. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. How long, so, do you remember how long those times would be? Like five minutes, half an hour? Oh, no. A uh, few minutes tops. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Easy solution. This is, this is, this is from memory. I, I, I hope I'm remembering all of this correctly. It's just... mm-hmm. Cool, cool. The idea is a good thing, though. The Example, the engineering, using induction, figure it out, see the cause-effect things going on. Um, you just find some pattern. It's like, who cares? It's not going to help. Oh, yeah. We found a pattern. Okay, so what? Um, yeah, then, then you got to go beyond just the pattern. And then, oh, yeah, and that reminds okay. me, you know, the difference between correlation and causation. Um, there's a lot of correlations. Like, people find maybe the number of storks born somewhere correlates with the number of bursts, but there is no induction there. There is no causation. But you have to establish the causation. It's, it's like a... Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, what is it? The correlation between the number of pirates in the world and global temperature. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, th- I think or something like that. That's the Pastafarium. Yeah, yeah. The I'll put a link to that. Monster, right? Yeah. That's great. Pastafarians. Yeah. I'll put a, try to put a link to that graph in the show notes for folks. It's pretty cool. But yeah, so that'd just be correlation, not causation. There can be a pattern, but there is no induction. Yes. And then a lot of the correlations that have no causal relationship whatsoever that people talk about in all kinds of different venues and books and blogs and articles and stuff. Um, cool. Um, so what are some other, do you have some other examples of induction or deduction in engineering or like to discuss a different topic Mm -hmm. now or. Yeah, I'd like to go (laughs) over another topic mainly because you got me stumped on that question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure after the podcast is over, I say, "Oh yeah, here's another one I could have thought of." Happens to me all the time. Happens to everybody, really, if they think, if they have a memory, if they're curious, if they process. Um, 
but cool. Um, so what are some other thinking skills involved in engineering? Um, okay. Uh, can I go into the language? Sounds I good. Use the language. Good. Um, I've got two. I've got two examples of why that's important. And I'll start with the bad news. It was actually the worst airline disaster in human history. It was in 1977 at a place called Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And there were a number of causes to this. One, there had been a bomb threat in their primary uh, uh, airport, so they're landing in the backup airport. And they're waiting and waiting, and this is a runway. It's a single runway that doesn't have a taxiway all the way down the runway. And so it was a KLM and a Pan Am flight, and the KLM flight was first, and they, they're, they're, they're basically ready for takeoff. And the Pan Am flight was taxiing, but they were on the portion of the runway that didn't have a taxiway. So they're on the runway. It was foggy, and neither, crew, neither flight crew could see each other. Hmm. And the, the tower was giving instructions to KLM on what to do after takeoff what heading to go, what altitude to fly, all these kinds of things. And it was a rather garbled radio transmission. So when the KLM pilot heard the word takeoff, he thought he was cleared to takeoff. Hmm. And so he did. He started rolling down the runway. And by the time he saw the Pan Am flight was on the runway, he tried his best to pull back and, and take off early, but failed. And the two planes collided. And, 583 people were killed. Damn. Wow. And part of it is, as a result of that, nowadays, if you listen to air traffic control chatter on the radio, they will refer to the, the, that portion of the flight immediately after takeoff as departure. Hmm. So for departure, climb to this altitude, go to this head and do this or whatever, according to, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a very specific thing, you know, it's like to avoid that kind of confusion. Hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. On a happier note, when the Apollo missions landed on the moon, particularly Apollo 11, <clears throat> so they had, a, you know, less than a minute worth of fuel left. They barely made it onto the surface of the moon. Um, and they landed. Then there was a call within 60 seconds for all the flight control because they're concerned that they might be sinking into the sand or they might be on the bank of a, the edge of a crater and starting to slide into the crater or all kinds of concerns were within 60 seconds they made a, a call whether or not they're going to stay on the moon. And somebody pointed out, there's some confusion here because if you listen to these 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 loop recordings, it's like you're you go for takeoff, you go for this bird, you go for this event, or you go for that event. Well, once they landed on the moon, somebody pointed out, if we use the word go, does that mean like go, as in leave the moon immediately? And so, as soon as they landed on the moon, they changed the language of, of the call to, to stay or no stay. Just, you know, just, just to avoid this confusion hmm. yeah, in, in a situation where, 
in a situation where you know you have very little time to make a decision, the last thing you need is 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 having confusion over well, what does the word mean? Hmm, true. So. Yeah, so that's like. So those, go ahead. But, but you know, again, you know, precise use of language shouldn't be exclusive to engineering, should it? Um, right. But yeah, it's but unfortunate. Pretty fundamental to knowing what you're talking about, having a precise definition of terms. Sometimes it's not necessary for some stuff, um, but. When you get to some situations more technical, more abstract, more life or death, we need to have really precise, clear language. In other words, concepts, which means thoughts. Um, what kind yeah. of thing are we talking about exactly? How is it related to other things precisely with cause-effect relationships? Um, it's not a matter of, um, like, you know, and sometimes in the culture people think logic's irrelevant um, just act on your emotion, do what you feel, um, just do it, um, things like that. Logic is corrupt or corrupting, but, um, it's a good, some good examples there, you know, show how it's central to human communication, to getting along, to surviving and thriving, avoiding injury. Um, it's not, uh, academic exercise, it's not a textbook thing. It's a matter of life and death and material mm -hmm. hard survival. Yeah. So I'll give another. I'll give another example. This is from my military background. We were doing a uh, training exercise, and the order, the objective, the goal was. Uh, to um, to clear a certain area. That's how the order was written. Hmm. In, instead of to uh, gosh, I forget. Uh, instead of to, I'm forgetting the other word, but basically to seize the area, to control the area. And somebody on the staff asked the person briefing the order, and it's like, "You said clear. Do you mean clear? Or do you mean?" or whatever the other word is. Clear in military terms means you occupy a particular piece of terrain and then you turn over every rock and find every enemy soldier and get them to you know, kill them or you get them to surrender. And this was a large piece of terrain. This would have been you know, a, just a major, whereas if you just seize the area, you don't have to do that. You just need to maintain, maintain control hmm. over it and Right. And so and then they came back to, no, we don't really need clear. Huh. Yeah. Um, somehow somebody slipped up when they wrote the order. That's another example I can think of. Um, yeah. And I think in some martial arts, sometimes some people teach clearing a room. But yeah, like, what do you mean? Um, and it turns out, you know, clearing a room in some context means you getting you and some others safely the hell out of there. It doesn't mean getting everyone else out of the room, clearing them out, it means clearing yourself out safely. Okay. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important distinction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. um, and then I think uh, 
one thing that Lavoisier did, French chemist, what, 1700s, one thing he did. Discovered to, oxygen? Yeah, I think so. But in terms of what you're saying, a big um, impact he had on science and on chemistry in particular was defining the terms, making a clear terminology in chemistry, whereas before there could be the same word that could mean by different people, used by different people could mean different things or the same thing could be called different names. Um, and if I remember right, he was the one that started the modern terminology. So we had more conceptual clarity. So we knew what was causing what, how things were actually related, how you could engineer stuff, what stuff was actually made of. Um, it avoided the, the, some of the confusions like you were talking about. Okay. I just did a really quick uh, browser lookup. And among the thing, other things that he did is devised the modern method of naming chemical compounds. Oh, cool. Thanks. Cool. Appreciate so, that. Um, Good. I remembered right. Sweet. And discovered that air is a mixture of gases. So it's here two gases, but it's actually more than two, but there's predominantly nitrogen and oxygen. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, the idea that you have a, you know, a consistent way of naming what a chemical compound is so that everybody knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. And you yourself are clear about it. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Any other thinking skills you want to discuss in regard to engineering, deduction, classification, concept formation, definition, induction, anything else? I think we've covered it. And then one thing I think you mentioned earlier before we started was just um, an important aspect of logic and thinking skills is having a reality orientation. Oh, yes. And... It's something we actually need to discuss. Um, some people might think, oh, that's stupid. Reality and orientation. I'm obviously oriented to reality. Who isn't? Everyone is. You get a PhD, a scientist is reality oriented. But as we've discussed before in other podcasts, um, podcasts with Hannes and other people, um, the great Johns Hopkins University in their, what, a biomedical department, um, Gundula Bosch and Arturo Casadevall, they started a program, um, the RICE program, I think R-I-S-E, that helps PhDs in their department who are going to become scientists. They're getting a PhD. Learn logic and science. Because um, if they have to learn it there, then clearly they didn't learn it in undergraduate school or in high school or in the culture in general. Um, they got to learn basic things about science, how to be logical, um, how science really works as best they know it today in our point at this point in history in the culture. Um, so they've got to learn some stuff there. Um, or there was a experiment that came out. I forget if it was 2016, 2019. Um, 
March 31st, maybe something. It wasn't April 1st. I looked to see if it was an April 1st, April Fool's joke, but it wasn't. But MIT, the great college engineering school, um, some people who I just looked at the title and read a little bit. I got to read. It must have been PhD physicists, though. Um, so they're scientists. They call themselves. They're physicists, PhDs, major university, not some little put up nowhere. Um, they're not drugged up, drunk, druggies um, at some lunatic asylum. This is MIT. And they said that an experiment in quantum mechanics proves there is no objective reality. It's like, please, God, are you serious? It's like, if there is no objective reality, then what are you talking about? How can we communicate? What does objective mean? You know, are we communicating? Do I exist? Do you if, exist? If, no, if, there, if there is no objective reality, what the hell are you even experimenting on? Right. Well, What's yeah. the subject of your experiment? True. Why are you writing an article? Why are you talking to anybody? Why are you doing physics? Yeah. Just bizarre. Okay. So there's some th examples right there, and there are many more that show we do need logic in our culture, in engineering, in education, um, and just having a reality orientation is not something you can necessarily take for granted in someone who calls themselves a scientist or engineer or whatever. Um, something, and, and, oh, go ahead. And to, to segue into, like, engineering education um couple of things about my undergraduate education i had two classes in philosophy um and it, not once in, an introductory class and then another uh, higher level class on it's called war law and ethics but that that's not the important one the, the introductory class I walked out of that class not knowing what metaphysics is, what epistemology is. I never sat down, and it's it's like Leonard Peikoff has a lecture where like he it's his first lecture, and first he starts out he you know why is philosophy important? And then he says, well, what is metaphysics? What is epistemology? Not what's a proper epistemology? Not you know what what are they? You know, metaphysics is the study of the fundamentals nature of reality epistemology is the study of how we discover that and then of course you get into ethics politics and aesthetics but and you know this is a, you know this is a, a pretty prestigious university it's notre dame i mean but in that class absolutely zero instruction on the laws of logic zero and wow. there was a grad student who would just just throw philosophy texts at us and say, read this and write something about it. Read this, be able to understand what they were saying on a test. And it was like, there was no, there was no connecting anything together. There's no anything, you know, and by the time we got into the more modern philosophers, like I had to actually read some contact with, I couldn't make heads or tails. What the hell is this guy even trying to say? You know? Yeah. True. Yeah. And, uh, um, it was terrible. It was, it was like, Yeah, especially you know, it's like okay, well, what are the laws of logic? These are these are these these go back to the Greeks, right? I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, right? It was Aristotle or, or 
a bunch of the different Greek philosophers who, who, who would say, well, you know, what are, what are logical fallacies? Yeah. Nothing. None of that. Absolutely none of that. You know, I mean, it was just, and I, I'm pretty sure it's to the people who, who teach philosophy, who are philosophy faculties, it's, it's, it's just their little floating castles in the air that, that they, you know, like you said, how, you know, how many, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen kind of a thing? Not, it's like, okay, well, we've got potentially future engineers and businessmen, lawyers, doctors, teach them the tools that they need to, 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 well, just in life, you know, somebody who, 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 who may have to serve on a jury one day. Yeah, so while some of these professors of philosophy, there's some that are great, that are good in their stuff, like Dr. Peacock, good philosopher, um, really right on. But then there's too many who are caught up in their own world. They want to, like, make philosophical arguments with each other, maybe discuss some things, um, ignore important things about logic and reality, say there's no objective reality. Um, maybe they can it gives them a job, gives them something to do, but... When it comes to engineering and science and business and law cases, as you're saying, that is irresponsible. That creates injury, failure, death. It is not something we should be putting up with in the culture. We need to put our foot down on some of that. Um, we need, look at some of the examples we talked about today and in the past, we need better thinking. It is not a little ivory tower, irrelevant thing. It's not like playing Monopoly. It's a serious, hard, material matter of life and death. Logic, as I like to say when I teach logic, um, is a tool of survival. It's not an airy-fairy little yeah, game. It is. it is a tool of survival. And yeah, it's like... Absolutely. Sorry to hear that that happened to you. Um, but were those courses something that were required, or did you choose to take those particular ones, or what? They were, they were required of all majors. At Notre Dame, two semesters of philosophy, two semesters of theology. Actually, come to think of it, the War Law and Ethics was actually a theology class. Hmm. Yeah. That bad. had some fairly useful stuff. Oh, cool. That's good for a change. Hmm. It's about on the hour. Do you got to, can you talk a little more? You need to run, get some things done, or what's your schedule and life like right now, Hannes? I. I think I need to take off and get get a bite to eat. Cool. Good. All right. Great discussion. Loved it. All right. Thank you. So Thank you. You All enjoy right. your dinner. Have a good day and have a good holidays and Christmas if I don't talk to you before then. But uh, thank you very much for your time okay. and everything. Awesome. Sure. Okay. Bye. Thanks.